Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's great to be back in the Word of God together again with you. A man by the name of Roy Roberts, he used to tell the story of how he moved out of religion and into a relationship with God. He testified that his ship, the West Virginia, docked at Pearl Harbor on the evening of December the 6th, 1941. Roy went with a couple of other men. They left the ship that night and attended a Bible study. And the man leading the Bible study asked everyone to recite their favorite verse from Scripture. Each man, in turn, shared a verse and then said a brief comment about the verse of why that verse meant so much to them. Roy sat there in terror. He grew up in a Christian home, went to church three times a week, but he sat there terrified because he couldn't think of a single Bible verse. Finally, he remembered one verse, John 3:16. Roy sat there rehearsing the verse over and over in his mind, and each man took his turn. It was almost his time to speak, and when it got to the man sitting next to Roy, the man quoted John 3:16. Roy couldn't believe it. This man was quoting his verse the only verse that he knew. He sat there stunned, humiliated. In just a minute, everyone would know that he could not recall from memory even one single verse. Roy testified that later that night he went to bed thinking, Robertson, you are a fake. At 7.55 the next morning, Roy was woken up by the sound of the ship alarm ordering the men to battle stations. More than 350 planes of the Japanese Imperial Fleet were attacking their ship and the military base at Pearl Harbor. Their crew raced out to their machine guns on the deck of the ship, but all that they had was practice ammunition. For the first 15 minutes of the two-hour battle, all that they could do was fire blanks, hoping to scare the Japanese pilots. As he stood there firing fake ammunition, Roy said to himself, This is how your whole life has been firing blanks for Christ. It was at that point in time as the Japanese bullets slammed into the ship that Roy realized he had a decision to make because all he had up to this point in his life was the fake, counterfeit religion of men and not a living and saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The Word of God tells us of another man with much the same story. We find him in the Gospel of John. A man by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Let's read about him in John chapter 3. We pick up our text with verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. 
so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ignore the chapter break here. This is taking place soon after the events of the first temple cleansing. And we learn in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. Back in chapter 1, the Pharisees had already investigated John the Baptist, and John had told them that the Messiah of Israel had arrived. And when the Lord Jesus cleared out the temple in chapter 2, it caught the attention of one member of the ruling Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was one of the highly educated ruling class in Israel, and he wanted to know more about Jesus. This was a rich man, respected among men, a ruler, and a man fully steeped in the religion of the Jews. But none of these things brought the peace that he longed for. The Pharisees kept the law of the Sabbath. They tithed. They kept the cleansing rituals, only ate certain foods. They fasted and observed the holy days of Israel. But they, like many in the church today, got caught up in the rituals of men. The Pharisees were an elite group. There was only about 6,000 of them. But each of them took a solemn vow before three witnesses that they would devote their entire life to obeying the Ten Commandments as a way of pleasing God. We're talking about the men who felt that the Ten Commandments were not specific enough. So they began to define God's law. They began to spell out how it applied to the details of life. A couple of hundred years after this, the Jews would actually put together a book called the Mishnah. It is the written form of all the traditions that the Jews had during this time. The section of not working on the Sabbath in the Mishnah takes up 24 chapters. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest and to refresh the soul. Here is what the Jews came up with in their interpretation of the law. Any form of work that you engaged in to make a living was forbidden on the Sabbath meaning a farmer could tie his animals with a rope during the week, but he could not even tie a knot on the Sabbath. Now, there were exceptions. Knots that could be tied with one hand were permitted on the Sabbath, but not one that required two hands. And a woman could tie a knot in her clothing. It didn't take very long for people to start looking for loopholes to get around all these rules. If a man needed to draw a bucket of water out of a deep well, he wasn't permitted to tie a rope onto the bucket because that would be considered breaking the Sabbath. But if he tied the rope to a piece of woman's clothing, because remember, that was an exception. If he tied the rope to the woman's clothing and then back to the bucket again, he could draw up the water without breaking the Sabbath. The law said that mortar could not be made on the Sabbath. That was considered work. But the Pharisees went further and said that if a man were to spit on the ground on the Sabbath, that would be making mortar. So you could not spit on the Sabbath. But if you were to spit on a rock where there was no dirt involved, you could spit on a rock on the Sabbath, just not on the ground. And I think the key to all of that was making sure that you had good aim. 
The Pharisees decided that the distance a person was allowed to travel from his home on the Sabbath day was a thousand yards. But the people would tie a rope before the Sabbath from their home to the end of the street, which meant the whole street was their home. And they could go a thousand yards from the end of the street. And if people traveled around their city during the other days of the week, placing bits of food here and there, then they could call the entire city their home. And therefore, you could actually travel a thousand yards outside of the city, but no further. This is how the Pharisees were attempting to observe the law. This is how they were living in an effort to please God. And this was the group that Nicodemus was a part of. But as a ruler of the Jews, it meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was one of the 70 men who, along with the high priest, made up the Jewish high court, known as the Sanhedrin. This group of men held a lot of power, and according to the Jewish records, it is thought that Nicodemus himself was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem at the time. Here was a man with all of the academic training. Here was a man that knew the Old Testament scripture. Here was a well-respected leader of the Jews, but without an understanding of Jesus. Verse 2 teaches us that Nicodemus came by night to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The words of Nicodemus, we see your miracles, we see the signs that you are doing. This ties right back to verse 23 of chapter 2, during the feast in Jerusalem. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. Follow the line of thought. Nicodemus was a rabbi. For Nicodemus to refer to Jesus as a rabbi was the polite thing to do. It was to acknowledge Jesus as his equal. The rest of the Sanhedrin would have seen Jesus as just another one of the ignorant people of the land, a carpenter, someone who worked with his hands and had no time to study the laws of God. Nicodemus was in for a surprise. He recognized Jesus was a teacher, and he recognized that the signs pointed to a work of God. But what did they mean? That is what Nicodemus was about to find out. In verse 3, we have some of the most famous words that are recorded in the Word of God. Jesus told Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The heart of the issue here was that Nicodemus wanted to know if Jesus was there to usher in the kingdom. And Jesus responded by telling him, you're not going to see that kingdom unless you are born again. It was clear to Nicodemus that Jesus was at the very least from God. So could this be the moment when Israel was finally able to free themselves from the confines of Rome? Could it be that Jesus could deliver Israel? But Jesus had other plans. By all accounts, from a Jewish point of view, Nicodemus was a good man. Nicodemus was a very religious man. But Jesus made it very clear that he was also, at this point in time, not a part of the future kingdom of God. Nicodemus is the best that this world has to offer. Religious, educated, wealthy. But he was missing the righteousness of God, which can only come by faith. That is what's so great about this passage. If there was ever a man that could earn his way to heaven, Nicodemus was it. Born into the chosen nation, circumcised the eighth day. Like Paul, this was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, and a member of the Sanhedrin. But all of this was just confidence in the flesh. 
because man's righteousness is nothing in the eyes of a holy God. We need the righteousness of Christ, which is imparted to men when they are born a second time, born from above by trusting in Christ. Nicodemus came to talk about the kingdom of God, and Jesus answered his question before he even got to it. There comes a point in time in every person's life when you must realize that we are born with a sin nature, alienated from God, born enemies of God, and in need of a mediator, the Son of God, to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man. Nicodemus is confused. Take a look at his response in verse 4. How can man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus came to Jesus wanting to know about the kingdom of God, and he could not simply understand how a man could be reborn. His mind was thinking of a physical birth, not spiritual birth like he should have been. He was still failing to understand that in order to ever see the kingdom of God, you must first become a new creation in Christ. In verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right away, the attention in this verse goes to the words, unless one is born of water and Spirit. The reference to the Spirit is an obvious reference to the Spirit of God. But what about this statement, unless one is born of water? The two most common understandings is that either Jesus meant this refers to the natural birth, that this is a reference to the water breaking right before a new mother gives birth. The idea then would be that this means unless one is born the first time by water and a second time by the Spirit. Or a second understanding is that the word water is simply a synonym for the Spirit. Therefore, this would read, unless one is born of water, even the Spirit because the Old Testament consistently uses water as a metaphor for cleansing. There are other thoughts out there, but the focus must be on the broader point, that whatever Jesus meant here in verse 5, it is to be equated with being born again in verse 3. God was promising to cleanse his people and put his spirit within them. Notice what Jesus told Nicodemus in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus had the same problem that we do. He had been born into a human family, but what he needed was to be born into the family of God. Fallen men can only reproduce fallen men. We inherit the sin nature. We pass on the sin nature. And what is born of the flesh is flesh, the weakness of frail man. It is the Spirit of God that can transform a person into a powerful servant of God. Many years ago in Germany, there was a young Jewish boy who had a profound sense of love and admiration for his father. One of the things this young boy respected the most about his father was that their family life centered on trying to follow the Jewish religion. This family, by all accounts, seemed serious about their faith. The father was quite zealous in attending worship services, and he demanded the same from his children. While the boy was a teenager, the family was forced to move to another town in Germany. There was no synagogue in the new town, and the pillars of the community all belonged to the Lutheran church. Well, suddenly, the father announced to the family that they were going to abandon their Jewish traditions and join the Lutheran church. The boy, who had looked up to his father, he asked him, why must we surrender our Jewish faith and start to attend the Lutheran services here in Germany. 
And the father told the boy, son, we must abandon our faith so that people will accept us and support our business. At first, this young lad was confused, but the deep disappointment he felt soon gave way to anger and the kind of bitterness that plagued him his entire life. His faith in his father and in his Jewish beliefs were absolutely crushed. Eventually, this boy left Germany, and he went off to England to study at the British Museum where he formed his philosophies for life. He sat daily at the British Museum, putting together his ideas and writing a book, and in that work, he introduced a worldview where he envisioned a movement that would change the social and political systems of the world. Drawing from the past experiences with his father, he described religion as an opiate for the masses that could be explained completely in terms of economics and personal gain. It was during this time that he wrote the book that changed the world, known as the Communist Manifesto. The name of that little boy was Karl Marx, and today the world has seen the outcome of this type of thinking. From that one book, one-third of the world was imprisoned under this type of ideology. Millions of lives have been lost. The influence of this father's facade of religion multiplied to destroy countless men and women around the world. Religion is a dangerous thing. At its best, all that religion can do is give men a false sense of safety while leading people to hell. And at its worst, it can also destroy the lives of billions. Religion leads to death, and even the lost can see right through it. In Nicodemus, we see the very best of man, but a man in sin is still a man in sin. No wonder Jesus said to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The teaching is that no matter what you do, you cannot become righteous apart from faith in Christ. Nothing you can do can make you fit for the kingdom of God. You do not need just better thinking, encouragement, or a better education. You need the righteousness of Christ living in you, the transformation that comes by faith in the Son of God. Regeneration is the work of God. Notice again the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in verses 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, you, plural, must be born again. It switches in the second half of verse 7. You is now plural, meaning not just Nicodemus, but this is the need of all men if they want to see the kingdom of God. We must be born from above. This is the universal need of man. In verse 8, Jesus used a beautiful illustration. The Greek word for spirit is the same word for wind. And so there's a play on words represented here in the text. The point here is simple. The Lord used the wind as an illustration to represent the work of the spirit. For men living in the first century without satellites, without the technology, you could not know what direction the wind would come from or where it's headed. This points to the sovereignty of God the Spirit. And just as you cannot see the wind, you can feel it and see the impact of it. The rush of the wind can be felt and its work can be witnessed. Men do not see the wind and men do not see the Spirit of God, but it's pretty obvious when either one has been at work. Don't miss the teaching tucked onto the end of verse 8. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
meaning that the person who is born of the Spirit cannot be understood by men who are not born from above. They can witness the effects of the Spirit of God in our lives. They can witness when the Spirit is moving in the lives and hearts of His people, but they cannot fully understand it. Nicodemus was dumbfounded. How can these things be? Jesus responded to him in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Pay attention to the words that follow when Jesus asks a question. Because a lot of times, this is where some of the greatest of his teachings are found. How can these things happen? Nicodemus wanted to know how he could experience this new birth. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law, and he was unfamiliar with the need to be born from above. Go back to verse 2 for a second. Remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And Jesus turned it around on Nicodemus in verse 10 and said, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? And the suggestion here was that Nicodemus was one of the leading teachers of Israel. There is a rebuke here from the Lord that Nicodemus did not know about being born from above. Plenty of Old Testament scriptures pointed in the direction of obtaining righteousness by faith in Yahweh. The prophets wrote of not just the coming of the Messiah, but of the ministry of the Spirit of God and the new life that comes through the Messiah. I mean, to be honest, Nicodemus was showing a little bit of ignorance of the Old Testament scriptures. As a leading teacher of Israel, how did he not know? How did he not know about the cleansing that comes from God? How is it that so many religious leaders today do not know? Here Nicodemus was, standing face to face with the Christ, and all of his religious training had left him empty-handed. The same thing will happen when the men of religion of our day stand before the Christ. In this chapter, this ends the record of Nicodemus because the focus now shifts to the teaching of Christ. But the Apostle John does not leave us empty-handed because we see this man, Nicodemus, two more times in the Gospel of John. Turn over to chapter 7 of John. The context of this seventh chapter of John is that the Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. And once again, Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. But this time around, people were looking for him. Verse 14 makes it clear that some thought he was deceiving the people. Then we read down in verse 37, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This caused some division. Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was the Messiah. The Pharisees huddled up and take a look at how Nicodemus got involved. Down in verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? At the very least, at this point, Nicodemus was still open to the truth of Christ. And then by the time we make it to chapter 19, we will see that Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea to bury the body of Jesus. We see that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, and if I were to guess, Nicodemus probably was too. Because by helping to bury the body of Jesus, both men were not only risking their reputation, but they were risking their lives. Back in chapter 3 now. Jesus Christ, God the Son, he knew that this man Nicodemus would one day help to bury his body. 
Nicodemus may not have understood all that Jesus was about to tell him about the cross, but Jesus knew that someday he would. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The more I look at verse 11, the more convinced I am that it was almost as if the Lord was drawing a line in the sand. And on the one side of that line, the Lord was saying, this is where we stand. And on the other side, Nicodemus, this is where you stand. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you are still on the wrong side of things. But notice the Lord uses this expression, we, three times. Remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And so Jesus comes right back by telling Nicodemus, this is what we know. In other words, he's playing off of the words of Nicodemus from before. And there's a little more of a rebuke here. This is what we know. This is what God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son knew. God knew the Pharisees were not receiving the witness of the Lord. Verse 12, don't make it too hard. Earthly things, new birth, wind, things that happen on earth. Heavenly things, the ascension of Christ, the cross of Christ, and the response of faith in Christ for life. Nicodemus wanted to know about the kingdom of God, and Jesus was telling him, if you don't believe what I tell you about the new birth that takes place here on earth, how are you going to believe the matters of heaven? With verse 13, the key to remember is that Jesus was answering the question of Nicodemus back in verse 9. How can these things be? How is the new birth possible? And Jesus tells him first in verse 13, it is by the Son. In verse 14, he will tell Nicodemus the new birth is by the cross. And in verse 15, it is by faith. Life comes through the Son, by the cross, by faith. Simple message, isn't it? But so many have a hard time understanding it. So first in verse 13, we read that Jesus said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who comes down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Jesus is the author of life. He is the one who came down from heaven. Nicodemus may have been wrestling with heavenly matters in verse 12, and no mere man has the ability to ascend into heaven to learn of the things of God. But Jesus, he is the one who came down to testify of the Father. Jesus is the one who came down to testify of the life that is found in him. This verse, it's the explanation in Nicodemus of why Jesus could speak to him with authority of heavenly things. Here is where this becomes important. In the first century, there were a lot of stories going around about men who had died, who had ascended into heaven, receiving special insight into the things of God, and many of these stories centered on Moses. Jesus was testifying, no one has ascended to heaven in such a way that they were able to return to talk about heavenly things. Listen to Proverbs 30, verse 4. This speaks about this same truth, and it's just an absolutely beautiful verse. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know. Jesus could speak of heavenly things because heaven was and is his home. He is the eternal son of God. 
The point is, Jesus could speak of heavenly things, not because he was just a man that ascended to heaven who then returned to earth, just so that he could tell others of his experiences, but because heaven was his home in the first place, because he was and is the eternal Son of God. Our last two verses are powerful. Let's read them again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus needed to get back to the Word of God, and that is where Jesus took him. Let's head there to Numbers 21. At the time of the text, the nation of Israel was on the borders of the Promised Land. Numbers 21, we pick up the text with verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The people were in sin. They were being bitten by fiery serpents. This was the judgment of God because of their sin. The people were dying without hope, and just as the Lord instructed, Moses commanded that they make a bronze serpent and put it high upon a pole. It needed to be high so it could be seen by all the people. If you were bitten by one of these serpents, it was obvious you had a problem. You were well aware of your need. And all you had to do to live was by faith look to the pole, to look to God's protection for your life. If you had poison running through your veins, if you had faith in the Lord's provision, your life was spared. Second Kings 18 teaches that the day came when the people took this bronze serpent and burned incense before it until Hezekiah smashed it into pieces some 800 years after the events of Numbers 21. Back in the Gospel of John, as we close out our text, pay attention to the wording. As Moses lifted up, and further in the verse we see the words, even so. These words represent a parallel teaching. Jesus taught this Hebrew scholar the value of Old Testament typology. The parallel should be obvious. Christ was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. For all who are dead in their sins, there is life for those who look to the cross with faith for their salvation. The cross provides a cure from the poison of sin, deliverance from the death of sin, and the removal of the condemnation of sin. The Son of Man must be lifted up in order that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is God's way of providing life to all who believe. I close our time this morning by telling you the true story of a man who was born when he was 27 years old. We'll call him Steve, not his real name, but his story is. It all started when he was a 10-year-old wanting to know God. Two years later, he found out that the way people try to know God 
is to join a church. And so that's what he did. He joined, he was baptized, but nothing changed. Three years later, now 15 years old, he began to develop as a young man, and the urges and drives of a typical teenager were there. And so he tried another approach. He went to a different church. He walked down the aisle, joined the church, and was baptized a second time. This church taught that the only way to truly know God is to reform yourself by giving up the things you desire. So he did. He gave up drinking because he had become a drunk. He gave up smoking, playing cards, dancing. He even stopped dating. But he thought to himself, to know God, it's worth it. But he didn't. He didn't know God, and he began to wonder if it was even possible. After two years of giving up the things he loved and strict obedience to rules, he went to another church. He walked down the front, joined the church, and that night was baptized for a third time. After just a few months, he realized his condition was just as hopeless as it had always been. No change. So in his words, he kissed it all off and ran wild. He partied his way out of college, joined the military, and served his country in between his drunken expeditions. After he was discharged, he met a nice woman and married her, but it didn't take long before their marriage unraveled. He landed a good job, decided he would live well, but soon gave up even trying, because it was a total waste. Finally, he adopted the motto, live fast, play hard, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. That motto is usually short-lived because either you die or you quickly realize that life is precious. A brush with death sent Steve to dig back through an old bag where he had stuffed a New Testament the Gideons had given him when he was first issued his uniform years before. Steve pulled it out and began reading Matthew 1, but by the time he reached chapters 5, 6, and 7, he was in total despair because in those chapters, Jesus was showing that no man can achieve the righteousness of God apart from Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is intended to show us that we need the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith. Steve didn't know this, so he fell into despair. He knew he couldn't keep the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, so he skipped ahead to Mark, only to find more commandments. His guilt intensified. Then he turned to Luke, more commandments he couldn't keep. Confused, frustrated, miserable, he turned to John. And in the third chapter, he was hooked. He stumbled on an intriguing conversation between Jesus and a deeply religious man who seemed to share his struggle. Steve recognized his problem. He had been born in sin the first time, and what he needed was a birth of another kind. Like a child, he got on his knees, placing his trust in the one that came to save him. Steve was born again, born from above. And that changed everything. Steve discovered the difference between religion and regeneration. The Son of Man was lifted up on the cross for all to see, hung on the cross like a condemned criminal. He died this way because this is how God has chosen to reveal his love for sinners. This is love. This is grace. And this is life for all those who would trust in the blood of Christ for redemption. As the hymn declares, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?
Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.